greetings to the, the Saturday post-lunch crowd, which is never an easy slot to be, to be in. Uh, thinking a little bit about what we're doing over the course of the last couple of days, three of us are here from one of the partner institutions. We have our colleagues from Monash also here, who, as I do the genealogy and the kinship networks here, realize that makes us cousins, you know, related <laughs> to the, the primal parent, uh, in this case, of our colleagues at, at work. What I want to talk about today is some research I'm involved in that I think presents one example of the kind of work that we do at Boston University, where we have a long-standing African Studies Center founded in 1953, which involves a range, I thought about this earlier, from the single filmmaker whose very, very impressive presentation of a story we saw yesterday. We have public health, where we have had um, Susan Foster presenting a, a breadth of ways of thinking about a single disease. And what I want to present today is an example of how a team composed of many different disciplines comes together to tell a new kind of story that needs to convince an audience that includes scientists of the natural sciences which have, who have one set of criteria that convinces them, historians, epidemiologists, public health uh, people, because we have multiple tasks of creating one convincing story that then potentially can drive policy. So that's what I want to present to you today, primarily with images. And I'll tell you the story of how this evolved, but I, but I hope that there is enough of the scientific evidence presented here from my range of colleagues that will, you'll su will suggest to you that this has value. The title here, particularly for this session, The Unintended Consequences of Food Security. Food security is a topic in which people talk about increasing production, uh, increasing distribution issues to create food security for people, particularly in a place like Africa, particularly in countries like Ethiopia and other, other places within the, the, the continent. And what I want to point out is that the drive toward a policy-driven set of actions that, that emphasizes primarily one factor, one sector, has potential problems that we don't we have not anticipated, but we need to start anticipating in a more serious fashion. Let me begin by reading one, just one paragraph. I'm, I'm not going to read a, uh, a paper. But this begins with an epidemic in northern Ethiopia in 1998. I came across this epidemic that had taken place without my knowledge when I visited a place I'd lived for two years and talked to people and they said, you mean you didn't know about this? Oh my goodness, such a thing has never happened to us. So let me read you a paragraph here and then I'll go on to the evidence. In late summer 1998, a severe and deadly malaria epidemic broke out in northwest Ethiopia. In the single district of Bure alone, there were population about 100,000. There were 42,000 cases more than 740 deaths. In other words, 47% of the population of this area had contracted malaria during the period June to December. But the outbreak was not evenly distributed. There were pockets here and there of people not affected, people who were severely affected. In some areas, health officials eventually went in and simply locked the door of a house. You just close the door, they're all dead in there. Schools had half the children losing one or more parents to disease. This was a deadly epidemic. This was not mor morbidity. It was malaria that killed. 
people didn't know quite what to do. They first called it typhus. They didn't know malaria. This area, I had lived there for two years, no mosquitoes, no malaria. I've interviewed the health official who was there long before I got there and through the entire time I was there. He had never seen cases of malaria presented to him from that, from that region. And people began to think, where does this come from? It comes from Zach. It comes from a spirit. It comes from something. They began to sacrifice oxen of a particular <coughs> color and a particular type. It was consternation and a real sense of we don't know what this is. They didn't even use the traditional name for malaria, boba. They called it nidad. So this disease was something particular to that time and place. This was per perplexing for me because I could hear the stories of this afterwards and the fact that it was not even a blip on the, on the sort of world's sensibilities about malaria, malarial areas. This is an area that did not have malaria. So what this called for was the beginning of a team of people to say malaria is a disease of ecology. It's a disease of agroecology that links temperature, rainfall, soil, the vector of mosquito, what does the vector consume to sustain itself, human populations, the parasites itself. These are all distinctive to this area and requires, I'm not going to read these, but a number of different methodological approaches. The last one I'll spend more time on today, geospatial analysis, satellite imagery to tell us what's happening to this landscape. Malaria is the disease of disturbance. Forest vegetation is disturbed, creating habitats for mosquitoes. Mosquitoes transmit the disease from one human to another. And you can, you can look at the geography, world geography and local geography of malaria and see it's associated with disturbance of landscapes. Now that's part of the story here. This begins with, not me, I was working on this book on the history of maize in Africa. It was not a book about disease, it was about agriculture. And I met at the Harvard School of Public Health, Yumani Ebio, who was then doing his dissertation on the nutritional content of what malarial larvae eat, mosquito larvae eat, allowing them to survive into adulthood. Only about 13% of, of larvae survive. But he found when he provided additional nutrition, they survived at a level of 93%. And that additional nutrition was maize pollen. And we'll go into the dynamics of maize pollen momentarily. But what he found in his laboratory and his controlled field results that I, when I met him, we talked about the importance of these things relative to my work, was that mosquito larvae survived to the adult, the adult stage 10 times, or 10 times higher rate when in the presence of, in his case, maize pollen as a nutritional device, a nutritional um, supplement. They are, live longer, which is a very important feature. They have more opportunities to bite and to transmit. They feed more intensely when they're on when they're on maize pollen as a source of nutrition. They ha they tolerate crowding in a small area. They retain elements of maize ca carbon <coughs> in their wings. So when we do analysis back in the laboratory with the smushed mosquitoes I carried back with me to the Cambridge labs, we can detect which mosquitoes were actually fed on maize pollen as little ones. So it involves a whole series of methods that we need to put this picture together. And we also discovered the geography, the spatial dimension. 
where his field experiments suggested that because maize is wind pollinated, the pollen moves by the, by the wind, it drops, it's nothing like any other major economic crop. Maize is just distinctive. That 30 meters of distance, or rather 10 meters, he said, was the distance to where you have a substantial difference. If you're that far from the, from the, the maize plant, the amount of, of production will go down. So distance matters. The chemistry matters. The life cycle of the entomology of the Anopheles orbiensis mosquito matters. And we're talking about habitat. The agroecology is a place where mosquitoes propagate. The, the females lay their eggs. They take their blood meal. They develop the eggs. And this is the habitat. We don't associate this so much with mosquitoes in our kind of, uh, broader cultural sense of them. But the, the Anopheles mosquitoes of the type that we're looking for, these are hoof prints. Those are small ponds. That's where they propagate. They don't like rivers. They don't like lakes. They don't like large areas of, of moving water. This is what they seek. And this, ignore the math for a moment, those of you who are as challenged as I am, but look at the exponential <coughs> bold face up there. That is mosquito population. This is the McDonald equation developed by Professor McDonald at the London School of, of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene. And the exponential factor here, almost from a Malthusian ex exponential factor, is population of mosquitoes for increasing the rate of transmission, the power of the, of, uh, the ability to transmit malaria. Now, if we look at maize, take a step for a moment, look at my work on maize in Ethiopia, but it applies very much in South Africa and elsewhere, is that maize was of a very different type than what we see today. It was local, locally reproduced, um, hanging in the rafters to maintain the, the, the dryness of the seed. You see the genetic variety. This is close, the, the most purple ones there on the right is what Columbus brought from Cuba back to Seville, eventually to Veneto, eventually up the Nile Valley, eventually to Ethiopia. This is the history of maize in Africa. Early pictures of, of South African maize, you see that kind of variety. This maize yielded very, very early. In the middle of the rains, it's the first food you had. So its pollen, even though it dropped a lot of pollen, it was not particularly uh, contributing to this problem because the maize was gone before the mosquito larvae were there. So looking at the early role of maize, Ethiopian farmers didn't care much about maize. It was amusing. It was the food, first food of the season, but it was not a primary one. Then arrives SG2000, Global 2000, Jimmy Carter, Melissa decided they were going to improve food security of Ethiopia by pushing a new type of hybrid maize, drastically increasing production. Farmers loved it because it was six to eight tons per hectare. That's three or four times as much as they would get from any other crop. And the, in, the international seed corporations liked this idea because, of course, their, their stock and trade is selling hybrid maize you have to buy every year. So this is a package that says, add nitrogen, use our, our improved seeds, and you're going to get a huge yield. And indeed, they did. So by the time I came back to this place I thought I knew in Ethiopia, the landscape was transformed slash disturbed by the presence of rows upon rows and hectares upon hectares of monoculture maize. About the same time, and I'll show you in a moment, as the arrival of this malaria epidemic. 
So hybrid maize, not just any maize is sufficient. Hybrid maize is the one that deposits its pollen much, much later. You get good yields by having longer growing seasons. So we begin to have a confluence of two elements that never talked to each other before. The disease-carrying, tra transmitting vector mosquitoes and the presence of a maize that dropped its pollen right at the same time as the arrival of the eggs awaiting their, their nutritious meals. Don't worry about this chart except to say that in this area where I had, I had thought I had known the place, a very, very diverse agricultural setting. Ethiopia has many endemic crops, none of which are maize. But you see a trend, and 1995 was the introduction of this new type of hybrid maize. So from an agricultural point of view, big time dedication to a monocrop. In fact, we had a presentation by a colleague here on finger millet. Finger millet, almost gone, death, the, the important crop of, of Ethiopian grain production, reduced maize, the number one crop now in Ethiopia. You go to an Ethiopian restaurant anywhere in the world and you find maize on the menu, and I'll give you $10 or 10 something or other, you won't find it. It's not part of the, of the accepted diet. But you see it now everywhere on the streets. This is BH660, the hybrid variety. These kids are selling snacks, but for some people, that's their meal of the day. Maize has taken over. Maize is beer, maize is bread, maize is everything. And here is the issue about maize pollen. One, maize is the only major commercial crop with commercial economic value that is wind pollinated and produces the amount, physical amount of, of nutrition that gets dropped on the ground. One maize plant, just one, we're talking about a hectare of, of high population density, just one plant of maize yields 50 million units of pollen. When we did work with our colleagues in Ethiopia and their laboratory, the, the, the microbiology of it is it is the most efficient uh, sustainer of microorganisms of any that they had tried. So 50,000 units per plant, one hectare, if you're a farmer, they say put on 100 kilograms of fertilizer to, to make your, your crop grow properly. Well, one hectare of maize deposits 150 kilograms of just bulk nutrition. Pouring, it's like pouring kerosene on a fire in terms of the effect of, of one hectare, and then multiply that by hundreds of thousands in a given area. You can see the dusting that shook this this plant, the dusting from the tasseling down, falling down, blowing to some distance, and the, the amount gets reduced the further you get away from the plant, but nonetheless, it is a huge physical addition to the agroecology of the landscape. Looking back at Ethiopian agriculture, the one I thought I knew, I'd done my, my, my historical research on, mixed crops, distance from the house, so we're not too worried about the maize crop. This is not what they're planting, but if they were planting maize, a long way from what Yamani's uh, work told us would be a problem. When I went out to the countryside of this place I thought I knew, I lived there for two years and I think I knew it pretty well, the, maize, the, the profitability of maize was such that people had pushed it within not 10 meters of their house, 50 centimeters. It was an astonishing transformation of landscape. And you see the effect here. You see the effect on this is their fuel, maize stalks. This is their building material, maize stalks. This is their cattle forage, maize stalks. 
And this variety of maize is the one that deposits late, has the economic incentive for farmers, and is loved by our friend over there on the right. So we began to collect data from this place. Again, this was not a new arrival by me or the, my, my Ethiopian colleague, who had been the malaria control officer for this region of Ethiopia for, for 10 years. Collecting the data, we see basically no malaria through this period. The hybrid maize package, the Jimmy Carter package, arrived in 1995. You begin to see an effect. By 1998, we assume that there is a, a perfect storm of temperature, rainfall, maize being there, uh, the mosquitoes doing uh, their process of propagation, and you see a spike, and that's the 98 epidemic, seen purely in terms of malaria cases. A decline over time a bit, there's some spraying going on to try to re reduce it, but we basically have now an endemic malaria area in this region. And we did some correlations. We took local information about which were high maize producing areas, low maize producing, middle range, and then those that produced huge amounts of it. And we said, let's, let's control for altitude, which is the key factor in, in temperature in the area. Let's control for every factor we can for climate. And when we then, then did the regression, we found that there was a substantial difference between low maize producing areas, medium maize producing areas, and high maize producing areas. And now I get to use this. Down here you see low maize producing areas, almost no malaria. Medium here, a bit more. High maize producing areas have an infection rate, transmission rate of 10 times more than farmers of any other crop. When we looked at this evidence, we were sitting, there was no electricity at night in this town. We're doing battery-operated laptop um, regression, and I put together the agricultural material, and the word I sent back to Harvard Public Health was Eureka. Uh, I didn't say OMG, as they do these days, but <laughs> the same, the same uh, effect. Because what they'd hypothesized originally in the Harvard lab and done the lab work for, suddenly, in terms of epidemiology, we're seeing a correlation between these factors, controlling as much as we could for other ecological features. One of the things that's interesting is the success of the maze generated wealth. People with the wealth would then build more houses. To build the houses, to do the mud plastering, as many of you would know, you dig borrow pits. You find the right clay, women particularly can identify the clay and use it for building the houses or housing repair, creating new habitat right next to the house. We saw this again and again and again. So you have the prosperity factor. There's a seasonality to malaria, as many of you would know. There's also seasonality to habitat and to what, what maize is doing. You plant at a time when the, the, the pollen is going to, to drop onto the silk of the ears of the maize, and you're going to have, therefore, a good crop. Same thing is going on in the seasonality of the dry season, leading to the wet season, which is malaria time, which is also maize production time. So wet season, dry season, this is the same, the same place. They're, they're my, my colleague uh, and the kids collecting um, larvae to find out what type of larva it is. Because the mosquitoes that buzz and bother you do not carry malaria. The ones who carry malaria do not buzz. My, as one of my Ethiopian malaria colleagues said, 
she doesn't buzz, she sings. So you're lulled to sleep and they're therefore in jeopardy. So landscape transformation in a number of different ways and human settlement. I'll show you just in just a little bit that human settlement creates more habitat, more density of human populations, densities of reservoirs, human reservoirs of people carrying malaria that then could be bitten repeatedly. We're talking about between 100 and 1,000 bites per night in the high transmission season. Farmers are also adjusting what they're doing. Uh, one on the right, left, these are both the hybrid maize, but one the farmers have planted again because they don't want to pay for the seed. And what happens is you change the dynamics. So this, this one is the, the, the real thing, the pure hybrid maize. This one is F2 generation, where the recessive genes have come out and expressed themselves in terms of white tassels. So lots of dynamics. Farmers are adapting to more economic opportunities. The mosquitoes are adapting. And the parasites themselves are going through a transformation. So human settlements uh, being indica ind indicated here as different kinds of environments. You know, the kind of roof you have, the kind of windows you have, screens, no screens, uh, access to the mosquitoes, all is part of the complexity of malaria. Differences by gender and age. Young boys get malaria at a higher rate than young girls because they're out at night. Young women are encouraged to stay around. Those dynamics are still to be discovered. Part of what we did was to say, okay, here's one area, let's go to another area and try to understand these same dynamics. And so we've now been in the last four years, with the generous support of the Rockefeller Foundation, to move from up here, and this is the place I'm going this coming week, to working with the farmers. So here we've, we've drawn in GIS, technology to help us identify the areas to begin to understand habitat. This is a, sorry. Well, well, let's keep it this, this way. This is the area we're working. This chefe is a lowland area that around its edges has the habitats. Water, last time I looked, still goes downhill. And so it collects down at the edge of these lowlands where the farmers have their houses up here, and maize is, is increasingly planted along this area right next to the habitat. So by using the GIS mapping, we can begin to overlay it with information that's of relevance to our so lowland. You'll see this again reproduced in the high areas. Identifying both farms, whose farmers we know. We know their background. We know what they plant. We know their names. We know their children. The daughter just got, got married. And here we have both habitat and maize fields that we can begin to look at carefully. We have 22 of these settings where we're looking at this. Collecting mosquitoes, collecting larvae. And here's, a, here's part of our team. This is the multidisciplinary aspect to it. And what I want to encourage us to think about as we work together um, looking at particular problems and, and issues in Africa. An Italian economist from Belluno. We all know Belluno produces many Italian economists. <laughs> uh, you have Habitat, the head of the Ethiopian Na National Malaria Project here, Tony Kaszewski uh, from Harvard School of Public Health, a medical entomologist, Rebecca Robish, also from Harvard, who is a, a medical entomologist. Now a new part of the team, remote sensing engineering. They have 
put sensors into the habitat and sensors into the ground a meter deep into the maize field that allows them every 15 minutes to upload the moisture conditions, comparing rainfall, temperature to the moisture that's nurturing both the mosquitoes and the maize plants. So we some, when we come to that perfect storm, we can register it here. And just seeing the kids' reactions and what they're learning is pretty amazing. They're, they're very, very quick. Part of, our, of the idea, and this is my part of it, is to say let's control pollen in some areas and then collect the larvae, then collect the mosquitoes, look at them carefully. Is their size different? Is the population different? This is the tough, tough part. But by detasseling, taking away the tassels in some areas and then having other farmers just do what they're going to do in the other area allows us to compare the mosquitoes caught in both places. So it's a very tough set of agricultural issues of management together with the entomologists. The agricultural side, we try to clear the decks so the entomologists can do their comparisons. See the entomologists doing their, uh, their work very carefully controlled. These are people who have been doing, Dr. Wilder Mikhail has been doing this for 40 years in this area. So there's a great deal of experience. Young medical, uh, medical entomologist here, Yeheno, uh, Wilder Mikhail there. So building experience in trying to understand this relationship that no one had thought about before. Capturing mosquitoes in the house with CDC light traps, kids helping in the process as we collect them, and I carry them in, in the laboratory, measuring the wing length of the mosquitoes, which is a sign of, of, a, of longevity and potentially the amount of, of danger that they present by multiple bites over a lifetime. This is our, our, the results, wing length, a number of different bits of evidence that put into a logbook. Of all these sort of technical terms about what they need to know, this is a measuring device for measuring the wing length of the mosquito. It's done under the very tedious work. So think about this. The most deadly infectio infectious disease uh, in the world, certainly in Africa, 5,000 children, 5 million children a year die from malaria. Adult rates are somewhat different, but they're about to get worse if, if our projections are true. Maize about to become the number one commercial crop in the world. It's already number one in Africa by far, already number one in many different places. And it is increasing in places like Ethiopia. Certainly it's been there in places like Zimbabwe, Southern Africa, Eastern Southern Africa. It's the staple of the diet. So we have a number of different ways of moving from this. We're still at the proof of concept phase. We have laboratory published, peer-reviewed laboratory work. We have uh, the evidence from the epidemiology I showed you, peer-reviewed, published in the American Journal of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene. We have the ongoing work where we're trying to put together the nature of disturbance, the distribution of the disease through GIS approaches. And just to show you a couple of new pieces of the GIS, we're able to take old maps from the 1950s that we drum scan into digital form. And new, this pho the photograph from the right is 2003. This one is from the 50s converted. So you see the effect of that dam I mentioned. This is, a, this is a, uh, the, the town nearby, the market town nearby. Okay. Now you have hydrological change with the building of this dam, and very important for hydroelectric supply of Ethiopia. Land use change. Different crops with a predominant of maize. The sheep there is very important for me. 
you see he's he or she is tied up. The cattle, the oxen are tied up. That's a sure sign that land use is changing and pasture is at a scarce supply. They dare not let their animals out. They'll, they'll, disrupt, they'll destroy the crops and they want to maintain close control of them because there's not enough pasture. It's a real sign of landscape change anywhere in the world. And here's an example of the old map you'd use if you were going around Ethiopia doing surveys. But these old maps, sorry, these old maps actually had trees and things on them because they're based on aerial photography. These we digitized and we can compare to what we have now from the satellite. We just had a satellite image last week from a NASA satellite. I just received it this morning. And so we're allowed, we were able to look at time change over the 50s into last week about what's happening with the disturbance of this land that promotes the spread of malaria. This is a photograph taken last February from NASA Quickberg satellite. You see a few clouds here, create a problem. But this is our research site. This is that Chefe I showed you before, the lowland area. These are, these are areas that we know very well. We need to know the names of who lives in the houses. We know the number of children. All of those factors we know down to ground level. We know the depth of their well. We know the, the moisture of their field every 15 minutes. And if we take the data from the satellite you just saw and turn it back into forms that address the things we want to know, we see where is the new housing being built. Those are streets being built that we saw from the satellite but we've now converted into this form. We can see over here we have wetland areas, uh, some vegetation here. We see here's the, here's the road. The road is changing the economy of houses being built with mosquito habitat around them. We see the difference between thatched houses, which are more dangerous for, for, for transmitting malaria, and um, corrugated iron houses, all from the satellite data we can now chart. And of course, children are the most vulnerable. They don't have resistance. They develop their resistance over their first five years. Young boys go out at night, more likely to, to, to contract malaria. They're next to the habitat. And they're part of the process, generational change. I, I mentioned to, uh, to Alex yesterday that not only were, were his data really helpful on knowing the world population, Africa's population, but we are now living in the youngest planet ever. And I'm talking about the human population. This is the future. But of course, with young women being part of it. But for malaria, gender matters. And part, part of the problem I'm trying to address by making the point that malaria an agricultural change, the unintended consequence is, in fact, this disturbance is going to create new conditions where malaria is going to change its character. It took the Ethiopian government eight years to change from chloroquine to ART, to the new, the, the new therapy for, for dealing with malaria. It took them eight years to do that change, even though they knew the change had taken place. The mosquitoes adopted within several months. They're s collectively, they're much smarter than we are. Collectively, they're much faster than we are. Our bureaucracy, well, if we go back to the Copenhagen, that was terrific, right? <laughs> A really quick adaptation to what? You know, we have politics, we have economic interests, we have any number of things. Mosquitoes, as far as we know, don't have elections. And they don't have policy committees. They might, but they don't tell us about them. This young man is wearing a bed net. Bed nets are often associated with a quick solution. 
Jeffrey Sachs, bless his heart, wrote an article in, the, in Newsweek, and this is my ending point, in which he said the $10 solution is scandalous. As though do donating $10 of the goodness of your heart is going to transform malaria. The mosquitoes change their time to bite before your bedtime. Policy says 8 o'clock, the mosquitoes begin within a couple of months. Published, published work done in northern Ethiopia. Mosquitoes change their behavior within a few, a few months. So we have this transformative process. It goes to the type of mosquito. It goes to the kinds of global, global climate change that create new possibilities for mosquitoes that know how to hide. These mosquitoes in Ethiopia are the new type. When I asked the, just last one bit on, on bed nets, I'll say here, is that when I asked the director of the Ethiopian malaria program, what is your distribution rate in this area of bed nets? He said, 100%. Okay, I've worked. Um, what is the use rate? 2%. We go to our farms and we see, what are you doing with your bed nets? <laughs> Some of them are using them. And we saw, it was a great example um, in Sam's film yesterday, of the kids who were demonstrating without being asked how to use this thing. I, th I think that their sensitivity to drugs and to advice translated in really interesting ways. And that was a, a fantastic example. I'll continue to use it. So I'll have to get a clip of your film to put into this uh, presentation. But right now, bed nets are simply going to reduce immunity. And because we don't, why should we expect them to be more effectively distributed than other things? The infrastructure, as we heard today, of many of these places is so weak that they cannot absorb effectively enough. So control management is going to be the key. Management of the habitat, recognizing maize doesn't cause malaria, it accelerates it, according to our evidence. And that landscape transformation, which is economically driven, is going to increase in unintended ways the disease context of the future. Thank you.